All right. Well, this morning, we're going to continue with our series of messages out of the book of Acts that we're calling Awake. And uh, if you've missed it, what we're talking about in this series is the church when it's working right, or to put it differently, when it's awake. When it's awake to what Jesus Christ, the head of the church, the king of the church, is by the Holy Spirit doing in this world. And we've talked a little bit about what that is. I mean, we've said that what Jesus by the Holy Spirit is doing in this world is he is building the kingdom of God in this world. And I've said repeatedly, look, that's the goal. That's the project. That's the dream. That and nothing less than that is the vision that Jesus has. He's building the kingdom of God in this world. And the punchline of this whole series, if you haven't picked up on it yet, let me just give it to you very clearly. The punchline of the whole series is that he wants to do that through me and he wants to do that through you. Jesus Christ, by His Spirit, wants to build the kingdom of God in this world, and He wants to do it through you. And a lot of us have kind of got on to that. I mean, we're, we're okay with that. We're picking up the find-your-thing, do-your-thing deal, and we're figuring out how it is that God has positioned us, shaped us, made us in this season of our lives to build His kingdom. But there's still a lot who are kind of going, you know, I mean, I just don't know. I think the temptation of a lot of us is to look around the room and say, look, I think maybe God could build his kingdom through that person over there, and I'm pretty sure that he could build his kingdom through that person over there. And you know what? That whole family is like crazy gifted, positive, he could build his kingdom through there. If I was God, I would choose them for my team. And he has. But he's also chosen you. Jesus Christ is building his kingdom by his spirit in this world, and he wants to do it through every single person who calls themselves a Christ follower, even if you look in the mirror, you know, and if you were really honest, you would say, listen, that face in the mirror does not look like the face of a kingdom builder to me. The message today is that he wants to use even you. See, Jesus not only builds his kingdom in unexpected ways, we saw that last week, and we'll see a little bit of that again today, but he also builds his kingdom oftentimes through unexpected people. In fact, it's the unexpected people that Well, that sometimes he does the most profound things through. He wants to build his kingdom through you. And Luke doesn't leave us wondering about that. He shows us that in Acts chapter 8 through a story that's been come to know, that we've come to know as the Ethiopian eunuch. Okay, but it's a story like every other story that takes place that happens within a context. And the context for the story is one of a great revival. There's this massive wave of revival that the Holy Spirit has started north of Jerusalem in this area called Samaria. And the deal is it's being led by this one guy whose name is Philip. Philip is the lightning rod. Philip is the chief catalyst. He's the big evangelist. And he's leading this huge revival. Whole villages of people are coming to Christ. Thousands of people are making a profession of faith in Jesus. I mean, this is exciting stuff. And dead center in the middle of it, God breaks in. And Luke says this, verse 26, it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, who again is leading this big, huge revival, okay? He says, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. That's a head-scratcher because what he's saying is, Look, I want you to stop what you're doing, interrupt everything, stop the revival. I know thousands of people are coming to faith in Jesus. Quit. Time out. And I want you to go to this road in the middle of nowhere. And I want you to evangelize this one guy. That's what the story's about. And, you know, I mean, from our perspective, that just doesn't make a lot of sense. None of us would do that. I mean, we would have sent a lesser person. You know, Philip, do you have a protege? Good, we'll send him. But they send the top dog. God does. And if you give God credit for knowing what he's doing, and I think we ought to do that, 
then what happens as you're thinking through this story is, you know, I mean, deep in your heart somewhere, you start getting excited about this one guy. I mean, if he's going to interrupt this massive revival to evangelize this one guy, this one guy's going to be pretty special. When he looks in the mirror, surely he sees the face of just a really great kingdom builder. Or does he? It says, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, in the midst of this great revival, stop all, you know, quit what you're doing. Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then he adds this curious little detail that is so cool. You can't miss this. You've got to remember it. He says this, meaning this place that I'm sending you, Philip, the place where you're going to evangelize this one guy. He says, this is a desert place. The word desert means literally it's desolate. It's dry. It's no water. There's no life. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, stop what you're doing. Go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desolate place. It is a dry place. It's a desert place. And then we read that Philip arose and went. And meanwhile, you know, I mean, if you're following this along, you're kind of excited to meet this one guy. I mean, you're kind of on the edge of your seat thinking, okay, he's going to be special. He's going to be huge. He's going to be a big kingdom builder. Clearly, he is the face of the kingdom builder. And then Luke says this. It says, and there was an Ethiopian. And I want to stop for a minute because the word Ethiopian means literally black of face. And I want you to know that Luke wants you to see this man's black face. How does that make you feel? A little weird, right? You ought to try it from up here. I mean, we have been trained in our culture, and I think rightly so, to not notice something like that. To not discriminate. You know, and so we start looking at this passage and start wondering about Luke. Like, why is it that this is such a big deal? Why does Luke want me to notice this of all things? Why does Luke want me to see this thing about this particular man? Is it because Luke is some kind of a racist? No. Luke is a kingdom builder. And what is the kingdom of God? It is certainly not something that's defined by ethnicity or race or color or language or anything. God goes all over this globe collecting up from every different kind of people, every color, everything, and from it, He makes one kingdom, one people around one faith and one Savior, one spirit, one baptism, one church, one God and Father of us all. Luke is anything but that. Luke wants you to see this man, and he wants you to see his black face, and here's why. Because this man, as we're going to see in a second, is coming from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem in that day was famous for its racism. And the temple of God in particular is where that man would have felt most profoundly like a foreigner. This man is a clear foreigner. There were many people in the days of Luke who had, you know, pale enough skin and dark enough hair to pass for a Jewish person. This guy could not pass for a Jew. It's very significant. So he says, and Philip arose, and he went to this desolate place, this dry desert place, and there was an Ethiopian man, a a man black of face, a clear foreigner who could not hide that in the temple. And then he adds another very significant detail. He says a eunuch. And we don't want to run by that. We've got to actually talk about that. That's a little bit uncomfortable too, isn't it? 
You know, back in those days, it was not uncommon for the royal families of various nations to choose certain children, male children, amongst their slaves and to emasculate them. If you're still a little bit confused and you've neutered your dog, that should clear it up for you. Okay? It's cruel, isn't it? Now, why did they do that? Well, because they knew that they had to have certain guys that were going to eventually guard their harems, and they didn't want guys who were going to mess around with the women in their harems, just to be perfectly frank. And they also knew that they needed certain guys who were going to guard their treasury. And here's the deal. They did not want those guys to have a wife. They did not want those guys to have children. They did not want those guys to have grandchildren. They did not want those guys to develop any allegiances with anyone outside of the royal family, and thus, perhaps, be more tempted to steal. This guy's a eunuch, which begs the question of how would Luke know that this guy is a eunuch? How would Philip know? I mean, here comes the guy. He's riding in his chariot. He clearly is Ethiopian. Got that part. Moving on. But how do we know he's a eunuch? The exact same way that you knew that he was an Ethiopian. You looked at his face, for he had no beard. He was incapable of growing one. See, Luke is writing in a culture where every man wore a beard. If you wanted to humiliate a man in that day, you would shave their beard. It was like the most humiliating thing you could possibly do. They'd go run off and hide in a cave somewhere until their beard at least began to grow back. It was shameful not to have a beard. He couldn't grow one. Luke wants you to see his face. It's the face of a foreigner. It's the face of a eunuch. It's the face of a guy who would never have looked in the mirror and said, you know, I, I, think, I think I've got something to offer here in terms of kingdom building. Pretty sure that mine is the face of a kingdom builder. He's an incomplete man. He's not whole, but he's broken. And Luke wants you to sit and feel that for a second, not to race by it. You know, I think the reality is that as we grow up, all of us have certain dreams, certain expectations, certain things that we kind of just almost take for granted are going to happen to us in life. And one of them is we're going to fall in love. We all grew up with that notion, didn't we? We're going to get married someday. We're going to have children someday. It's always a little bit more idyllic than it turns out to be if it turns out to be. But here's the thing. It doesn't always turn out to be, does it? It doesn't work out always the way that we hoped and dreamed and planned and thought and totally expected. I'm shocked that it didn't. But it doesn't. And those for whom it hasn't will tell you it hurts. Can you feel this man's hurt? Because he was robbed of any such hope, expectation, or dream when he was just a boy. And we know what they thought of eunuchs in that day they mocked them mercilessly, they called them, you're going to love this, dry trees. They were trees that produced no fruit, and trees that produced no fruit were thought to be worthless. You see, a man was measured in that culture by how many sons that he produced. How many sons will our eunuch produce? Zero. He's a eunuch, and he wears that on his face. So anyway, Luke takes us out into the desert, you know, and we're all jacked up with expectations about who is this special guy going to be, and clearly he's going to be the face of this great kingdom builder, you know, because we're interrupting this major revival, and he's sending his top guy. 
And we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting and here comes the chariot. And then we see him. And he's black of face, so he's a foreigner in Jerusalem. And he has no beard. He's a dry tree. As Philip arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a, a man black of face and beardless, a eunuch, a dry tree. But then he tells us something else that's kind of interesting. He's, he's a very wealthy dry tree. He's a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. And Ethiopia, all throughout the Bible, is renowned for its gold and its gems. Candace, it's a matriarchy in Ethiopia in that day, had phenomenal wealth, unthinkable wealth. And this man, as the guy in charge of the treasury, he's not in charge like of a portion of it, he's in charge of all of it, participated in her great wealth. This chariot is fancy, man, and he's probably coming with a whole caravan to protect him. Very wealthy man. He's a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And it says then he had come to Jerusalem to worship, which practically speaking means that he had come into contact with a Jewish worshiping community in his homeland. And he had become convinced that this God of Israel was the true and the living God. And he was conversant enough with the word of God to know that Jerusalem and the temple specifically is the place where sacrifices for sins were made. So this man made an 800-mile ride by chariot to come to Jerusalem looking for eternal life and finding what? Because Luke wants you to imagine what he found. That's why it gives you all these details. He comes to Jerusalem and to the temple and specifically looking for forgiveness of sins, longing and searching for eternal life only to be met with prejudice and to be met with signs hanging all over the place saying, you know what, you can only come this close to God. Somebody with your face gets no further. Only to be harassed, called a dry tree, and doubly barred from the temple because the temple barred incomplete men such as this, broken men such as this, and only to be falsely flattered. Jesus described this very temple as a den of thieves, and you had better believe that they took every advantage that they could of this guy to rob him of his wealth. Oh, he was welcomed, quote-unquote, but insincerely. And this is the guy that Luke takes us, along with Philip, out into the desolate place, builds all of this expectation in us as to what is he going to be like, and then reveals to us on the desert road. That's been his experience. It says that this eunuch had come to Jerusalem to worship and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Do you know that is so awesome? I mean, that excites me for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is that I think this guy could have gone to Jerusalem, he could have gone into the temple, he could have been treated the way that he was treated, and then he could have said, you know what, God, if this is what your people are like, forget you. A lot of folks in our culture do that, don't they? Forget you, but he doesn't. He's still searching. He's still believing this is, the, this is the right God. He's still looking through the Scriptures for some scrap of mercy that, who knows, might by some freak chance be available to a man like him. 
He's reading the prophet Isaiah. What that means is that he's reading a scroll. He's not reading a book, and that's really significant. You have to get that in this story to really understand what's going on. I mean, a book is something you open and shut, and then you can open it to a different place and shut, and you can flip through it until you just find that one verse that you want, and you think it's in the book of this, and no, it isn't, and it's in the book of that. And Not with a scroll. A scroll, you scroll out, you scroll up, you scroll out, you scroll up, you scroll out, you scroll up, and when you finish reading whatever you're reading, you set it down. And when you pick it up, where are you? You're right where you left off. And a scroll was made of material that was so valuable, the parchment or the velum that it was written on, okay, that there were no margins, that there were no spaces between the words, and there was no punctuation whatsoever. It was just strings of letters from side to side, from edge to edge, all the way across, all the way across, all the way across. When it says this guy was reading the book of Isaiah, it doesn't mean that he was like kind of reading his scroll quietly and to himself. The only way to read such a scroll is to read it out loud. You sound it out as you go. And so he's sounding it out, trying to make sense of it. And it says, and the Spirit said to Philip, because that's what the Spirit does to people who are awake. He speaks. He nudges, he urges, he leads, he guides, he gives opportunity, he energizes, he lets you know what he wants you to do. If you're listening. It says, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. And so Philip, and this is so awesome, Philip ran to him. Philip didn't wait for him to kind of get to where he was and said, uh, you know, stuck out his thumb. He didn't walk over casually. I think that reveals something that needs to be present in our lives, and that is an intensity. That is an urgency about the kingdom building of our God. God calls us to build his kingdom, and he only gives us so many ticks of the clock with which to do it. The Spirit speaks, and this guy runs. He runs to his assignment. It says, so Philip ran to him, and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet out loud. You see, and he asked, do you understand what you are reading? And this guy, who's been completely humiliated by his experience in Jerusalem, basically kind of throws his hands up in the air and says, how could I unless someone guides me? Clearly, I need some help. So it says, and he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. And then Luke tells us something very, very important, and he's real specific. He tells us where in the scroll of Isaiah this man is reading. And it's what we know as Isaiah 53. He says, now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, and in case you miss it, he quotes it. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. And who can describe his generation? That means who can speak of his wife and of his kids and of his grandkids and of his... For his life is taken away. You know what it actually says? For his life is cut off. He has no children because something has been cut off. For his life is cut off from the earth. You know, it doesn't take a great imagination to kind of figure out why maybe the eunuch was interested in this particular passage. He's reading here about a guy who went through what he just experienced in some sense and what his experience has been. This is a guy who has been humiliated by the temple. He's been abused by the temple. He's been mistreated by the temple. He's been denied justice by the temple. And oh, by the way, no wife, no children, no grandchildren, no hope of any because there's been a cutting off. 
In his case, his life was cut off. So the eunuch is getting, you know, kind of drawn into this particular passage that Luke is real particular to, t to tell us about. And he said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or is it someone else? And then look what Philip does because this is what kingdom builders do. It is what we must do. It says Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, you see how specific it is? He told him the good news about Jesus Christ, the one who assumed all of our sin and guilt and shame and then endured as the penalty for our sin all of the hostilities of the temple of Jerusalem, including the cutting off of his own life on a cross, that we might be forgiven and that he might become for us the true temple. A temple that does not reject the foreigner, but instead goes and collects up people from all over the globe every language, every tribe, every nation, every color, every race, every tongue, and makes them one. And a temple that does not reject the broken and incomplete, but welcomes them sincerely into the family of God and makes them whole. Philip brings this guy to Jesus. He preaches Jesus straight out of Isaiah 53, which is all about the sufferings and death of Christ. And then immediately we read, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water, which means what? It means that they started in a place that was desolate. Remember? A dry place. And they've come now to a place with running water. A green place a place that is full of life. Luke is a poet. He's writing this story in such a way that what happens geographically in this story is a picture of what's happening in this guy's heart. He's started in desolation. He started there, back where it was dry and dead. But he's come now by the Spirit working through this guy Philip in conjunction with the Word of God, Isaiah 53, clearly preaching Jesus to a place of living water of life. It's amazing. It says, as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch sees this, you see, and he says with excitement, he says, see, here is water. Look. And then he says, and I wonder how he said this. I wonder if it wasn't a little bit timidly, given all that he's experienced. What prevents me, he says, from being baptized. Is there anything, anything, because I was just in Jerusalem and it didn't go well, is there anything that prevents me from eternal life? And the answer is no. And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water. Now just read that naturally with me, would you? They command the chariot to stop and they get out. You can see this, right? And they both walk down into the water like I would walk down these stairs. You get the idea? It doesn't mean they both went under the water together. In fact, you know, we think we know where this road is, and in all likelihood, there's a pretty good shot that we know where this baptism occurred. And it's a weighty. A weighty is a dry river that runs with water during a certain season of the year. It's probably about as deep as your knee. They walk down into the water, and Philip baptized him. 
which probably means that they walked down into about here. He bent over like this. Philip scooped up water and poured it on his head. That's the picture that the early church drew, literally, in the catacombs of the baptism of Christ. He's bending over, and John the Baptist is pouring the water on his head. And then what do they do? Just read it naturally. They came up out of the water. They walked up together. And then what happens? It says the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. He's gone. And the eunuch saw him no more. Now, why did the eunuch see him no more? Well, because A, he's gone. But also, because in all likelihood, the eunuch never returned to Jerusalem. Why would he? The temple, who is Christ, by the Spirit of God, was living within him. He never needed to go face the indignity of that place again. It's amazing. And then Luke closes the story with this really interesting statement that if you're not racing through the story, you know, you're not reading it going, oh, yeah, I've read this before, you know, that you, you don't, you got to stop and think about it. It says, and the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. See, but what you have to ask is, how does Luke know that? I mean, clearly Luke talked to Philip, right? That's where the story came from, and he recorded the story, but Philip was gone at this point. How does Philip know that? Is this just an assumption? It's not an assumption. Luke knows that this man went away rejoicing because he knows that this man was reading a scroll, and a scroll is not a book. You don't flip through it and you know, open it to whatever page you want. A scroll, again, you remember? Scroll out, scroll up, scroll out, scroll up. Wherever you, wherever you put it down, you pick it up. And he's been real clear about where that is. Hasn't he? See, Luke's excited, and he knows this guy. I mean, he is absolutely certain this guy went on his way rejoicing because he knows that when this guy with wet feet and knees and who knows what else got back in his chariot and began again his 800 or so mile journey home that he picked up that scroll and he started where he left off. Philip preached to him from Isaiah 53, which is all about the sufferings and the death of Jesus. It's written in a minor key. It's very, very sorrowful poetry. It's like, a, it's like a dirge. It's just sorrowful. But then comes, uh, comes Isaiah 54, and everything changes. Isaiah, this great poet, shifts from the minor key to the major, like triumphant, like let's go have a party key. And he sings and he shouts as he shifts from this topic of the sufferings and the death of Christ for all who would believe to what the sufferings and the death of Christ has accomplished for all who would believe. And he knows the eunuch would read it. And what would he have read? Isaiah 54, verse 1, he says, Sing, O barren one, who did not bear... Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor for the what? For the very thing that you were denied as a boy. For the children of the desolate one. Where did the story begin? It began spiritually and physically in a desolate place. But that's not where it's ended. The children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. Or as we would say, look, build a bigger house because God is going to give you a ton of children. But what kind of children? Physical children? The man's a eunuch. What kind of children did Jesus have? Because he didn't have a wife and he didn't have physical kids. Spiritual children. 
See, the gospel invites you to think in different categories. How would that have struck the ears of this barren man? See, Luke knows he would have read that and rejoiced. And then as he continued on his 800-mile journey, Luke knows what he would have come next. See, not long after that, he would have come to Isaiah 55. Where then he would have read what? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Now, wait a minute. He had just stopped. See, he says, there's water. Is there anything that prevents me from being baptized? He's probably still wet. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. This guy is so thirsty, he rode 800 miles to the temple in Jerusalem looking for eternal life, searching for eternal life, only to find it in a desolate place. And he went all the way there to be rejected except, well, for his money. Which makes, I think, Isaiah's next statement all the more poignant. It says, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price, for the gospel of Jesus is free, at least to us. It cost him his life. And the temple, which is Christ, is not one that rejects the foreigner. It is one that brings him in to the household of God and treats him truly, sincerely. It's marvelous. So Luke knows that he would have gotten to that and he would have rejoiced, but Luke knows also what he would have read not long after that. And this is the clincher. It's like, you know, if he didn't pick up on the other things, Luke's positive that he picked up on this. Because in Isaiah 56, it says this. Verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come. Who is the salvation of God? It is the Lord Christ. This man knows that the salvation, this prophecy, has been fulfilled in Jesus. And he's a believer in Jesus. For soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. He's like, yeah, I'm all over that. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. And then here it is, let not the foreigner, not the man, lack of face or foreign for any other reason, who has joined himself to the Lord, Say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. There are no signs in the temple, which is Jesus, that say, you know, you can only come so far. And then this is it. It says, and let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. See, Luke penned those words and he went on his way rejoicing. And I think he put his pen down and he just worshiped. You know, we don't know the name of this guy um, today, but he's a person who's been known to millions of people for the last 2,000 years, not just because they've read about him in the book of Acts, but because he is historically regarded as the founder of the Coptic Church, which is a church in Ethiopia and in the southern Sudan. It is the most persecuted church in the world. It has been for the better part of 2,000 years. It's a group of believers who have paid for the gospel with their life. Men, women, children being persecuted, men, women, children being killed, some even being crucified. And yet they cling to the gospel. As we sit here now, there are three million or so of them in Egypt alone. And every single one of them look to this man and they call him Father. He is their Father. 
Our Lord is building his kingdom, guys, and he's doing it by his Holy Spirit, and he does it in some really shocking ways. I mean, I don't know, you know, I mean, you're pulling Philip out of the middle of this thing? Are you sure you had your coffee, God? You thinking rightly about this? He's going to ask some weird stuff of us, too, at times. That may only make sense 2,000 years later. Who knows? But it makes sense to him. But the point today is that he builds his kingdom through really unexpected people, people who you wouldn't point to and go, ah, that's the face of a kingdom builder, perhaps, and certainly who themselves would never look in the mirror and go, you know, I think I really have something to offer here. This is the face of a kingdom builder. Jesus, by his spirit, is building his kingdom, and the punchline of the whole series is that he wants to do that through me and through you. So find your thing. Go through the exercise. Pick up the packet in the back. Figure out what it is that God has been preparing you all your life in this season of your life to do for the advancement of his glory and the building of his kingdom and then by the power of his spirit urgently do it. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your gospel We thank you that all the signs that would bar us from coming to you are down. They're gone. They've been removed by the Lord. We thank you that in Jesus we find a place of acceptance. No matter what nation, language, race, color, any of that stuff, it's all irrelevant. And also no matter what sin we've done or has been done to us or what's happened to us in life, you take us in truly and sincerely. And by your gospel, you make us whole. You fill us with your spirit. You give us gifts for the building of your kingdom. And you give us the privilege of investing our life in something that in the end really matters. I pray, God, that you would build your kingdom through us and impress upon us exactly what it is that we're to do for the doing of it. Do this for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.